In this video, we are going to kick off our discussion of the final chapter of Objectivism, the Philosophy of Iran, Art, with art as a concretization of metaphysics. Stay tuned. All right, so I'm actually not going to do separate summaries and analysis of this section. And I think it's, the, I mean, the main reason why is that I think the progression here is really valuable, that the main thing I think Leonard is adding from Ayn Rand's own essays here is that he's giving a really easy to process step-by-step -step progression that kind of brings together pieces that she talks about in several different essays. And so I'm going to kind of interject my comments, refinements, and everything as we go along, but I want to keep the progression because for me, it was super valuable in order to go through it this way, and uh, I don't want to lose that. So let's we start out in this with um, before we even get to the section with a brief discussion of why aesthetics is a branch of philosophy rather than one of those you know many philosophy of topics that you wouldn't include in philosophy proper like philosophy of science or philosophy of math and the answer we get is that art fulfills a need of man's mind a universal need of man's mind a need intimately related to philosophy itself and that's going to be explored and fleshed out in the first section. So we start out the first section with the point, the observation that art serves no purpose beyond contemplation. That it's not utilitarian, like we, you know, consume art in order to like get a better body or romantic partner. It's that it's an end in itself. As thought, and yet, even though it's an end in itself, this um, doesn't mean that it's purposeless. Aesthetic contemplation does have a does serve a real survival need of human beings, but it's a need not of our body but of our consciousness. So, as beings who survive by concepts, who survive by the conceptual faculty, we need the guidance of philosophy. We need an integrated view of existence of man and of man's relationship to existence, and that includes ethics. But even deeper than that, it means we need a, a view of what's possible to me. What kind of world do I live in, which is the precondition for ethics. And Rand calls these metaphysical value judgments. Now, they're not value judgments, which so the wording can be confusing. They don't tell us good versus bad. Rather, Rand calls them this because they're metaphysical conclusions. They're conclusions about the nature of reality that are going to shape our actual value judgments. It's going to be, this is possible, that's going to shape, therefore, this is what I should do. This is what I should go after. This is the kind of person I should become. So let's, uh, there's kind of two major places where Ayn Rand talks about examples of metaphysical value judgments. So I'm just going to read those quotes. So the first one, she says, is the universe intelligible to man or unintelligible and unknowable? Can man find happiness on earth, or is he doomed to frustration and despair? Does man have the power of choice, the power to choose his goals and to achieve them, the power to direct the course of his life, or is he helpless plaything of forces beyond his control, which determine his fate? Is man by nature to be valued as good, or to be despised as evil? 
These are all metaphysical questions, but the answers to them determine the kind of ethics that men will accept in practice. The answers are the link between metaphysics and ethics. So one thing you probably noticed in those is this is a more expansive conception of metaphysics than we get in OPAR itself. So in OPAR, Leonard says that metaphysics is highly delimited. It's basically existence exists and it's corollaries. Um, here, Ayn Rand is using metaphysics in a broader sense to cover kind of man's metaphysical nature, the basic nature of reality, and our, our basic relationship to reality, and, and including some epistemological elements. Here's another quote from Rand. Uh, uh, we'll talk about this in a second, but here she's getting on that a key concept of what metaphysical value judgments are giving is what's important. So this is what she's phrasing it in terms of importance. She says, it's important to understand things. It's important to obey my parents. She's not endorsing all of these, by the way, but these are just different kinds of views of what's important in life that she's naming. It's important to understand things. It's important to obey my parents. It's important to act on my own. It's important to please other people. It's important to fight for what I want. It's important not to make enemies. My life is important. Who am I to stick my neck out? Man is a being of self-made soul, and it is of such conclusions that the stuff of his soul is made. So in order to think and act long range, we need to have an articulated view of life, an explicit view of life, and in particular, answers to these metaphysical questions. But it's not enough just to have answers. Um, we have to keep those answers operative in our thinking. And so the question is, well, how do you do that? How do you take these kind of very abstract, very broad and kind of multifaceted questions and have them operative, keep them alive in your thinking at all times? To do that, you can't just have a laundry list of metaphysical conclusions. They need to be available as a sum. So philosophy is what gives you metaphysical conclusions. It gives you particular principles about man existence and man's relationship to existence. But what you have then is enormously complex. I mean, if you just think of how much material we've covered in OPAR, like even a third of that, if that was like the content you had to keep in mind, like you couldn't do it. You'd be able to validate the conclusions one by one and you'd be able to bring, you know, one or two of them into conscious focus at a given time. But how would you ever hold them as a sum? And so that's what art is going to do. Man, and uh, I'm quoting right now, I, from Leonard needs a concrete that can become an object of direct experience while carrying with it the meaning of his whole view of life. That is the role of art. So then we get Ayn Rand's definition of art. Art is a selective recreation reality according to an artist's metaphysical value judgments. And we'll be breaking down the different pieces of that. So like all of us, an artist has a certain view of the world and what he or she is doing when they're creating art is they're selecting what aspects of reality to highlight in order to express that view of the world. Now, since most artists aren't philosophers or philosophic innovators, typically what happens is that you get an expression of the culture's view of the world. And so this is why Leonard can talk about, you know, the Greek art is revealing Greek philosophy and medieval art is revealing the Christian philosophy. Um, but the point is that art reveals the artist's philosophy, whether it matches the culture or not. And 
with the treaties, um, or rather, it's not with the treaties that Art is doing this, right? It's that it's precisely not what the treaties can't achieve that we're trying to achieve. And the point is that with an artist, you enter their world, you see the philosophy, you experience the philosophy made real, made tangible in the form of a universe that you're stepping into. And so the way Leonard puts it is, an artwork does not formulate the metaphysics it represents. It does not, or at least need not, articulate definitions and principles. So art by itself is not enough in this context. But the point is that philosophy is not enough either. Philosophy by itself cannot satisfy man's need of philosophy. Man requires the union of the two, philosophy and art, the broad identifications and their concrete embodiment. Then, in regard to his fundamental guiding orientation, he combines the power of mind and body, i.e. he combines the range of abstract thought with the irresistible immediacy of sense perception. Art then performs a very similar function as language. So the way that Leonard puts it is both complete a process of conceptual integration by the use of sensuous elements, but both thereby convert abstractions into the equivalent of concretes. So the root, or at least a root of art, is man's need for unit economy. If you'll remember what we talked about in epistemology, unit economies, we need to reduce units because of the crow, because of the limitations of what we can hold on focal awareness. And language does this. It reduces um, uh, concepts to this kind of physical word that you can hold in mind. And so the way that, and we're going to see that art does it, and I really like how Leonard puts this. He says, or he puts this connection rather, he says, concepts condense percepts, philosophy as the science of the broadest integrations condenses concepts, and art then condenses philosophy by returning to the perceptual level, this time in a form impregnated with a profound abstract meaning. But it's not just unit economy. Only concretes exist. This is something that we talked about when we were talking about concept formation. It's that the only thing that actually exists in reality are, are concretes. So art is also a way of making our philosophical abstractions fully real. It does this by objectifying values, uh, allowing us to contemplate them in the form of an existential object. Now, the value of condensing and objectifying our philosophic abstractions it's clear if we look not at metaphysics, but at ethics. So the way Leonard puts it is to grasp and apply a given code of values properly, one must know a series of separately identified moral rules and also their integration, i.e. the moral character and way of life to which they add up. Such integration requires reduction to a unit. One must be able to summon into the focus of consciousness an image of a man following such a code. So remember our discussion of morality and how we started our discussion of morality. We started out by saying that morality is really about answering the question, what kind of person should I seek to become? What kind of character do I want to cultivate? It's about coming to embody what we look up to and admire, what we revere when we say, um, 
look at the David or read Cyrano de Bergerac or preferably watch Cyrano de Bergerac uh, or read about Francisco d'Anconia or Dagny Taggart. So the starting point of morality is not some isolated virtue, but it's contemplating different kinds of lives and selecting which ones to emulate. And the task of ethics then is to translate into specific principles. Um, it's to translate what we want to emulate into specific principles we can endorse and character traits we can cultivate and that can guide specific actions we're going to take. And But the point is that to formulate those moral principles, you need a vision of the total human being, of a moral ideal. And then to apply the moral principles, it's the same thing. It's that you still need that vision of the total. In How to Live a Rational Life in an Irrational Society, Rand says that it's something like it's fairly easy to grasp abstract moral principles, but it can be really difficult to apply them to different situations, um, particularly when you're dealing with like moral characters and moral challenges. And, you know, we can debate how easy it is to grasp moral principles, but there's no question that applying them is difficult. And so Rand says in the Psychoepistemology of Art that uh, the way she puts it is many readers at the Fountainhead have told me that the character of Howard Rourke helped them make a decision when they faced a moral dilemma. They asked themselves, what would Rourke do in this situation? And faster than their mind could identify the proper application of all the complex principles involved, the image of Rourke gave them the answer. But I want to pause on that for a brief second because some people take this to mean that basically, well, you we can just trade in the objectivist ethics for asking what would work do and then the you know we get the answer and we know morally what to do but the problem is that Rourke is not just an abstraction he's a concrete human being albeit a made-up one and so you need to be able to get what's uniquely him versus what are the abstract principles that guide him that w one can emulate rather than just kind of like copy the concretes of his life or his personality or his preferences or something because i mean like take an example rourke's probably not a big person for going to parties like i don't see him going to like watch stand-up comedy or something you know if i ask myself what rourke do sing karaoke it's not going to like come to mind very likely um but that's personal to him or it's at least what's evoked or suggested by him by things that are unique to him it has nothing to do with the actual principles the moral principles that are universal and that make him a moral independent person and so if all you have is the what would work do question that is needs to be the start of a thought process not the end of one and so notice what Rand says immediately after this and this is what i think people don't pay enough attention to here after the quote I just read, she says, they sensed the people who asked what would Rourke do. They sensed almost instantly what he would or would not do, and this helped them isolate and identify the reasons, the moral principles that would have guided him, such as the psycho-epistemological function of a personified, concretized human ideal. Um, so what I'm stressing is that what Leonard is stressing is you need both. You need the explicit philosophic principles and the concretization. Now, to wrap up ethics, um, Leonard notes that 
this kind of discussion of um, ethics is it's an eloquent eloquent illustration of the points about uh, how art condenses and objectifies um, philosophic concepts, but that concretizing ethics is not the main purpose of art. And indeed, not all art deals with ethics, that the primary purpose is to concretize metaphysics. So this is just kind of bringing us clarity about that, um, because it's, it's easier to see with ethics, because you're dealing with oughts, you're dealing with actual values. And the, the reason that that's not the focus of art is that um, art is not didactic. Art is not about teaching us a philosophic message. Now, at one level, and so at one level, what art is, is it can be inspiring fuel. When a rational person encounters art that objectifies his or her metaphysics, that art gives them a vital experience of having achieved their long-range values here and now. One of the criticisms of the kind of view that we should pursue our happiness is that, well, no, that is a um, hopeless endeavor because we're constantly dissatisfied. Like you go after something and you think, oh, this is going to really add to my life. And then as soon as you get it, you're like, all right, I'm on to the next goal. And the idea is that like, you're pursuing this fantasy of constantly thinking that the next thing will make you happy. Um, now that's wrong as a criticism and that each achievement is rewarding and at the same time propels us on to further achievements. And that's because the work of living is never done. It's the part of, it's the process of pursuing greater and ever greater achievements that is part of the reward. Um, but there's something right about that, or at least something that makes it plausible. Remember when we were talking about sex, we said that part of why it's such a profound value is it's the metaphysical pleasure that allows us to experience life as an in itself. And art performs the same function, but in, a, in an importantly different way. So if sex is more about experiencing myself as good, art is experiencing the world as good for me. So it's myself as good in the world or fit for existence. And here it's, it's existence is fit for me. And both are forms of experiencing the here in the here and now that life isn't in itself. But with sex, again, the focus is more on ourself and internal. And here the focus is on the world. It's external. And so that's why objectivism describes both sex and art as making possible metaphysical joy a the way leonard puts it as a moment of love for existence so you can learn from art but that's secondary and the main sense actually in which you can learn from art is not in the content of what's true but in a way of looking at the world in a way of seeing the world and leonard calls this a technique for directing one's awareness directing it away from the inconsequential and toward the metaphysically essential art thereby clarifies a man's grasp of reality in this sense he quotes ayn rand art teaches man how to use his consciousness it conditions or stylizes man's consciousness by conveying to him a certain way of looking at existence and the way art does this is through its selectivity. 
art doesn't tell us what's true, but what the artist regards as important. By the very act of selecting something as worthy of inclusion in a work of art, the artist says, this matters. This is what counts in life. This is how life really is. Well, what does that mean? We get one of Ayn Rand's most memorable examples. It's the beautiful woman with the cold sore, and it's in real life. doesn't matter at all. And in art, it conveys a real message. It says this is important, which means beauty is futile, man is ridiculous. Um, or take the an example that Leonard gives that I really like. He asked Ayn Rand once, you know, like, if Galt was on a date, everything would go perfect for me. You know, I like spill champagne on myself and just, you know, ruin the evening. And Ayn Rand's answer is that, well, yeah, that could happen to a real life Galt too, but he would ignore it. It's that in real life, you would ignore it. In art, you omit it. And and so that's the issue of importance. It's importance means that like, this is where you pay attention to. This is what you say. This really counts in life. And notice People have a perspective on what's important and what's worthy of attention that you can that you can really see. Like a simple example is, you know, I'm sure you've met people like this. They get into a car accident and it's, yeah, see, life isn't fair. Just when you think things are going well, like reality comes along and does something like this. And later, let's just say they get a raise at work and then it's, yeah, just you wait. They'll probably fire me next week um when things are going well like you better not let yourself enjoy them too much right because you know in the end like something bad is going to happen and you can think about this as optimism or pessimism but optimism and pessimism are really the view of what matters what's worthy of attention what do you regard as like really real remember the examples that leonard talks about of like you know the um the medievals knew that not every person was like sick and twisted and sad. Like some people were proud, strong and happy, but they didn't think that was important. They didn't think that was really what counted in life. That was the exception. Um, that was kind of a temporary aberration and vice versa with the good. Like the Greeks knew that not everybody was strong, healthy, fit, happy, but they viewed that as the metaphysical norm. So, um, that's exactly what it means that we all have metaphysical value judgments is that we have a sense of what to expect from life, what's possible to us and whether success is to be expected, uh, or not. And it shapes our lives emotionally. It shapes the kind of choices we'll make, how ambitious and how resilient, how much grit, like, do you think a person who thinks that success is just a temporary chimera will show? Now, Leonard points out, most people don't hold their metaphysical value judgments, their view of what's important in explicit terms, and indeed, many artists may not. They hold it in emotional terms in the form of what Ayn Rand calls a sense of life. And she defines this as a preconceptual equivalent of metaphysics and emotional subconsciously integrated appraisal of man and of existence. It's something we form over time through what she says are single discrete conclusions or evasions about our own particular problems, and it then becomes a generalized feeling about existence. And so she calls it 
an emotion, but then she'll, she kind of clarifies that it's, it's not like most emotions. It's more kind of a sense or a feel of, yeah, this is, this is what life's really about. And if you'll recall our opening discussion about philosophy in this whole series, 50 videos ago or whatever it is, we said that we form an implicit philosophy as we're growing up through these kinds of discrete decisions and choices and judgments. And the main form this takes is our sense of life, and that's kind of our implicit metaphysics, our psychoepistemology, which is our implicit epistemology, and our self-esteem, which is our implicit morality. And what philosophy as a science is supposed to do is teach us how to make our own implicit philosophies explicit and then to consciously evaluate it and then alter it if need be and um, either you know alter our conscious convictions and then alter our emotional outlook as best we can and um, use that to guide our lives so for example just to get what this means like translating your sense of life into explicit terms would be consciously identify the metaphysical value judgments that underlie that sense of life and ask are they true like do i endorse this can i actually justify these metaphysical value judgments but whether or not we do that Rand thinks it's our sense of life that is at work whenever we create or consume art so the way she puts it is it is the artist's sense of life that controls and integrates his work directing the innumerable choices he has to make from the choice of subject to the subtlest details of style. It is the viewer's or reader's sense of life that responds to a work of art by a complex yet automatic reaction of acceptance and approval or rejection and condemnation. And let me just add that Ayn Rand's analysis of how sense of life gets formed, um, she has a lot to say on that, but I find it incredibly difficult to understand and would not want to recapitulate it and certainly not pretend that I fully understand it I would definitely refer you to her article philosophy and sense of life and also Ankar Gatte's um, chapter in the Blackwell Companion a being of self-made soul where he talks about this aspect of sense of life and I think does a really good job of clarifying a lot about it so we've gone through a lot in this section, and so I just want to summarize so that we can hold it all. Remember, unit economy is a good thing. So we get that art serves a crucial survival function. It's that we need to be able to condense and objectify our philosophic abstractions in the form of concretes. Art is able to do this because it gives us concretes selected on the basis of what the artist regards as metaphysically important. As a result, we're able to hold our abstractions as if they were concretes, and we're able to experience our abstractions directly as if they were percepts. Art condenses, and art objectifies philosophy. This makes possible a powerful emotional experience we can experience our ideal world as if it were real here and now. Our reactions to art are driven by our implicit metaphysics, our implicit view of what's important, our sense of life. When an artwork matches our own sense of life, 
we experience the act of contemplation as an end in itself. And we need that experience to sustain our survival, the survival of our rational faculty, the survival of our soul. That is it for this video. Be sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel and sign up for the newsletter at donswriting.com. Tune in next time when we will get to the second to last edition of Commentaries for Objectives in the Philosophy of Ayn Rand. Talk then.